Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. Welcome to the Hot Debrief podcast. Today's episode is a little different in the sense of our guest's career and how it's somewhat aligned to the police and emergency services world, but certainly uh, from a different angle. So today we have Simon Boda AM, a senior reporter with the Channel 9 Network who's had a career spanning over 40 years in the space. Welcome, Simon. Thanks very much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for coming on and uh, sharing your side of the the camera, actually, because it's uh, it's one of those things. I guess a lot of police and emergency services over the years get used to being on the other side of the uh, the lens compared to yourself. But it's um, yeah, it's one of those aspects of major incidents that I've often wondered how people like yourself just year after year cover those type of stories and you keep doing it. You know, it's it's. It's got to be tough work, and I certainly, uh, I'm, I'm really keen to hear your perspective on how that's done. So, going right back, could you just tell us how you got into journalism? Well, just before I do, I just, as part of your intro, I think I will just say that I think there's a lot of parallels between emergency services workers and frontline journalists, and we often hear about how police and fireys and ambos, um, rural fireys, they all rush towards the scene of a disaster or a problem or an accident or a crime. Similarly, journalists run towards it when most people will be running away from it. Yep. So I guess it puts us both in the same sort of same sort of world where we go towards these events and this danger rather than run from it. So I guess the, there is a lot of synergy between emergency services workers and journalists in many, many ways. Absolutely. But I guess to go back uh, 40 years, um, my first job was um, – as a copy boy slash cadet at um, News Limited, which was what News Corporation used to be called, and I was working the midnight to dawn shift listening to the police radios. So we had a, a wall um, which had every police district in Sydney, uh, the speakers would come into this one room, and my job was to listen out for what might be newsworthy events and then log them and obviously activate um our reporting crews if something was to break and that and that that gave me the taste I guess for police work I mean before I left school I was either going to be a cop or I was going to be a journalist yeah um, and I went down the journalist path so and and that enabled me then in those very early days I worked alongside some amazing crime reporters um not many of your listeners or many might remember Sig Colbert or Bill Jenkins um one worked for the Daily Telegraph one worked for the now defunct Daily Mirror and um they were Tremendous crime reporters, but what astounded me most about them was their their ethics and the amount of trust that they managed to earn with the police officers and fire brigade and ambulance officers that they dealt with. And I thought, well, if I could if I could mimic that some way in my career, um, then I'll have achieved what I wanted to do. And that that whole career and, and their whole career was built on on the word trust. And it's one of the most important words in in my in my uh, dictionary, and that's trust. Yeah. And well, actually talking, you know, I, I guess the elephant in the room is often 
people are very cautious around journalists, like particularly police officers and things like that. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, I've come across certain freelance, you know, videographers and and journalists over my years, and and there were certainly some that you uh, you, you had your guard up around. And yeah, I, I um yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. A lot of it's built on that actual trust element. Uh, mate, I agree with you. I mean, I'm a journalist and there's not many journalists that I trust. There are quite a few, <laughs> but there are some I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't trust with, um, uh, you know, with yeah. anything. But that's just the way I guess life is. There's different people who perform different ways yeah. and have different uh, belief systems themselves. And so, you know, I think uh, we've all got to be accepted for what we are and yeah, just do yeah. the best job we can, you know. Yeah. Now we we uh, go back a little ways. Actually, you were, were the MC at the Blue Mountains Police Rescue Squad 50th anniversary up at uh, up in the Blue Mountains that I was part of. And some of the things that I remember you saying up there about your role and 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 exactly these parallels that we're talking about uh, in your careers and our careers, and a lot of that crossover. Work, um, I guess nice to hear some of your sympathies to some of the things that were going on, and also likewise with us looking. At um at yourselves having to cover those things all the time, but but winding back way way before that, I know you've had a you've had a wild ride during parts of your career in international deployments, particularly. Could you tell us a little bit about how on earth you became? Well, I guess what how your career turned into that international correspondent and some of those some of those things that you've been deployed to over the years. Yeah, well, I guess um, uh, it's quite significant that we're speaking today. Um, just two days ago, I celebrated 33 years working here at Channel 9. Wow. Um, which was quite a milestone for me. Prior to that, I've been working in newspapers. Um, I work for the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mirror, which is defunct, as I said earlier, and the Sun newspaper, which is also defunct. Unfortunately, newspapers, um, I guess, have lost some of their immediacy as far as media is concerned these days because the media is that. It's immediate. and um, Newspapers, while they're online and they do compete very, very well that way, um, you know, they're up against radio, which is instantaneous, and television, which is just about the same. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting world that's evolved in media. Yeah. For me, um, I came to Channel 9 as, the, as a crime reporter and I became the senior crime reporter for Nine News. And I was that for quite some time, but I always had that, that urge to be a foreign correspondent. Um, I didn't want to abandon my crime reporting, and I always thought that I'd come back to that, which I have done. But um, I ended up, I guess, the first real foray into that was um, was East Timor um, when the Unifet, uh, sorry, Interfet troops uh, went in. I was uh, based up in Darwin at the time. They sent me up to Darwin to cover the refugees who were fleeing East Timor. Oh, right. And then it was decided by the United Nations that Australia would lead a peacekeeping mission to go into East Timor was led by Peter Cosgrove, Major General, who then became our Governor General, a wonderful, wonderful man, I must say. And um, I ended up being embedded with the Australian troops and, and went went in on day one with them. Um, and day one was was quite, um, quite interesting in that um, we were the enemy. The militia was ruling the land at that time. Um, and I remember we, we went in on um, Hercules aircraft and we hit the deck and I looked out the window briefly and I could see... Uh, machine gun nests manned by Australian Special Forces is along the uh, runway because at that point the only part of East Timor that had been secured was the uh, was the runway. Wow. So we ended up living on the runway for about three days um, while all the uh, the extra troops are coming in, Blackhawks and, and multiple uh, aircraft, 
and then eventually we managed to move into Dili itself. And I guess that was, um, I was there for probably off and on for three months. I ended up getting dengue fever out of that, which wasn't oh. a pleasant experience. And there were a number of journalists, I think from memory there might have been two or three, I might be exaggerating there, but who um, I guess overstepped the mark as far as their desire to find news and uh, ended up um, murdered at the hands of the militia. So, yeah, it was a bit of a wake-up call as to what the world's all about, I suppose. Yeah. And I know uh, you had a pretty intense couple of years there because that was around about the same time you went over to Fiji, is that right? Yeah, Fiji didn't come long after that. Um, that was sort of two, you know, it was early 2000, I think, from memory. But we went over there because the uh, the government, the the rebels had overtaken the uh, the government offices and the government um, um, compound, if you like, which was quite extensive, and they'd taken ministers of the government hostage. So we all, uh, you know, the media went over there en masse and uh, I was one of the journalists. Again, I was working for Channel 9 and we we covered it. And it was quite interesting because um, the rebel leader was George Spate. He was quite a, I guess he was quite a flamboyant sort of character and he welcomed us into his into the compound, even though he was wow. holding ministers hostage, hostage and there was a lot of his rebels were heavily armed. Um, they seemed to be running the roost uh, and the government had lost control and the military didn't quite know what to do. Um, so we were there for quite some time and I'll never forget one day, I think it, a lot of the media became quite relaxed about the situation and the relationship that had been built and we all thought it would end pretty peacefully but there was one morning where I, I myself and my cameraman, Cameron Harvey, um, we got up pretty early, we thought we'd go up to the compound, we left the hotel and we went up there and we, we walked into the compound and they gave us access, you know, they knew who we were and we walked in and they were all lined up and, and they were obviously receiving their orders um, and there would have been probably 50 of them or so. Um, and then all of a sudden they started marching out of the compound and down towards a military roadblock which had been put up um, about 500 metres down the road to stop the rebels leaving. So the, the government's plan was to keep the rebels within the right. compound itself. So we were walking alongside the, the rebels and they got down to the uh, the military compound and there had been some confrontations, verbal and a bit of push and shove before, but somewhere from somehow... Um, Shots rang out and um, there was just wild gunfire everywhere. The bullets were flying absolutely everywhere. We were up against a, uh, a wall. Um, I'll never forget it. We were up against this wall and I was with my cameraman. There was another cameraman alongside me from AP and he got shot. A bullet um, went through his elbow, um, which was up near his head. So it probably was about six inches from his head. He went down, dropped his camera um, and the bullets were, I could hear them whizzing past my ears into the wall behind me and I just knew I had to get out. And so I said to my cameraman, come on, we've got to, you know, let's go, 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 go. Um, the injured cameraman, he'd been dragged away by a Fijian guy, so we were hoping he was going to be okay, but his camera was left on the ground, so I, I just instinctively picked it up because they're worth quite a lot of money. Yeah. And I started running following my cameraman. He's in front of me and I, I remember we were running down this, we couldn't go anywhere, this wall just lined the road and there's still bullets flying. Eventually, there was a break in the wall, and I yelled out to the camera and go left, go left, go left. And he goes left, and we go through this this hedge, and we both landed knee deep in a, in a cesspit, um, oh. sewerage. Um, and we both just stood there and went, "Well, that's that's something." And and we had we were up to our up to our knees in uh, well, you don't want to know, but it smelled pretty bad. Interestingly, though, we we ended up getting out. Tell of Tell me your nickname out of that one's Lefty. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But we ended up getting out of there and we got back to the hotel and uh, I had the, still had the camera um, and I found the producer who'd been working with the cameraman who'd been shot. And by this stage he was, I think, on his way back to Australia for treatment. And um, I gave 
her the camera. And I said, look, this is his camera. And unbeknownst to me, it had been rolling the whole time. So it captured our right. our fleet-footed escape and our leap into the cesspool all on camera. And that vision apparently went around the world because the cameraman was working for what's, what's known as Associated Press. So um, they provide a service to all other media outlets who subscribe to them. So yeah, right. those pictures went around the world and, uh, yeah, I filmed them, which is un- unintentionally, of course, but... <laughs> That was certainly experience, and from there, I came back to Australia. And soon afterwards, um, I was offered the position of going to to London um, as one of the Channel Nine UK or European correspondents. Right. Um, so I took my my wife and my two kids, uh, and off we went to the next adventure. Well, you and your sound men or woman have had some adventures uh, over the years, because I know uh, Bruce Cameron uh, told us a bit about your role in the rescue of Anne Bodkin over in the Christchurch earthquake. So could you give us a rundown on what that was like from your perspective? Because Bruce certainly sort of, uh, I guess, told his version as a rescuer over there, but I'd be really interested to hear what that was like from from your side. Well, it was interesting. Um, when the earthquake hit, of course, Channel 9, then um, we had to mobilise as best we could. Um, and we ended up uh, chartering a plane um, and there was enough positions there for a number of reporters. Carl Stefanovic was one of them, Mark Burrows, myself. I think there was a couple of others and our camera crews, camera uh, operators. And myself and Sean Welfare, we were working for news. And um, anyway, we all we flew to Dunedin because we couldn't land in Christchurch. And so we had to drive up to Christchurch and we all sort of split up and went our ways and, and try to figure out the best way we could to cover the event. Um, and I... I, I knew quite a few fireys back in Australia, so I reached out to one of them, no names, no pack drill, <laughs> and I just said, mate, what have, you, you know, what have you guys got in place? What are you doing? He said, oh, we've got um, teams going in, USAR teams going in. They're on a plane now. They should be landing just after first light. It was still dark when we were driving, so we were there probably about two or three in the morning. And then I said, look, can I team up with them? You know, I'd love to to show the work that they're going to be doing. And uh, it was arranged that I'd link up with Bruce Cameron. Um, I think he was Alpha team from memory. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And um, so they literally got off the bus and I introduced myself to Bruce and, and he'd been informed that um, I'd be accompanying he and his team. And so uh, basically they, they got straight into action and, and their job was to walk the streets of Christchurch, which obviously were deserted at that point. When we first got into Christchurch, myself and the cameraman, before the fireys arrived, we were wandering around the streets. Even though there were roadblocks, we somehow, no one questioned us going in, so we, we got to the heart. And I'll never forget, there were still tremors and the buildings were shaking and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the cameraman and I were quite a precarious position because we were standing out in the streets and if a building came down, we'd be in a fair mm. bit of trouble. Anyway, we went out with Bruce and their main role was to um, search for survivors and um, they'd be going through cars and buses which had been crushed and. Um, spray painting them, they've been checked and buildings and they were going through, you know, they announced themselves as, you know, Australian News are anyone here? And the, it was a constant shout. And I'll never forget, we went to the Pine Gould building, which was one of those buildings that you know, everyone would have seen. It collapsed like a pancake. Mm. It was like, I think it was about five stories or seven stories tall originally, but it was just flattened. And um, Bruce's team had been um, assigned to go and relieve the Queensland team, which had been searching this particular site for several hours. Um, and as part of the handover, when we got there, we were with Bruce's team. So we actually went in past the, I guess, the roadblocks and, and we had access that not many of the media did. And um, as we 
walked up, they were obviously going to, Bruce's team, Alpha team was going to do a, a handover with the Queenslanders and as a result they turned off a lot of the machinery, the cherry picker, the, the ladder truck, the generators, everything was turned off and they were all in a park or a, a piece of land opposite the building doing the changeover, obviously talking about, you know, what they should look out for and the dangers, etc. And myself and Sean, uh, Welfare, we were standing next to, quite close to the building actually, and We'd been awake by this stage for quite some time, since the morning before, so I was probably 36 hours without sleep. And I, I heard a woman's voice and I said to Sean, do you hear that? And he looked at me as if to say, you know, you're crazy. And I said, did you hear a woman's voice? And then we, we both just stood there quietly and the next thing we could hear, tapping. Um, and it was a definite sound of metal on metal. And we both looked at each other and I said, there's someone still alive in there. And so we bolted across and I grabbed Bruce and I said, mate, there's someone alive about there. And so within minutes they got the ladder up to that particular point and um, one of the senior USAR guys got to the top of the ladder and was shouting out. And eventually they heard this this woman's voice come back at them. Um, her name was Anne Bogkin and she was the last survivor um, to be found uh, after the Christchurch earthquake. There were a lot of bodies, obviously, that were later located, but she was the last survivor. Mm. And miraculously she was in not a bad way. She... Um, she injured her back. Um, she managed to get under her desk as the building came down and it had stopped a lot of the pressure and so she was trapped there. But she wasn't that bad. I think she injured her back and, and um, some ribs. But she came out of hospital the next day and I'll never forget meeting her outside hospital. It was a pretty special moment. Yeah, I don't doubt that. And so you, you also had, a, I suppose, a reunion with her that, not a lot of emergency services ever get to have with people that they've been involved in their rescue or or recovery or whatever the the um their their involvement with them is. So what's that like actually meeting someone again after all of that time that you've been involved in their rescue? Um, it's very very special. Um, there's no doubt about that. You know, it, it adds a whole new dimension to the event itself because you're able to identify with this person and know a bit about their history, their children, their grandchildren, their, their married life, what they do, you know, how they live their life. You don't just see them as a victim of a disaster, but you see them as, you know, some, something more, which, yep. of course, they are. Everyone is. But um, we, I've got to meet her a few times, and we still stay in touch. I'll uh, call her out of the blue and we'll have a chat, and life's good for her. She's, um, you know, she really has bounced back. In fact, I think 60 Minutes, um, I remember they did a – story with Bruce Cameron's alpha team and myself, Ray Martin was hosting it and I'm pretty certain they brought Anne into that 60-minute story as well. Right. And that was um, – so I think for all the, the rescuers, especially part of Bruce's alpha team, I think that had an impact on everybody. Yeah, I bet it did. Yeah, I don't doubt that. do a lot of work with groups that are involved in what you cover in stories. So I'd love you to talk through how Grace's Place, the, the Homicide Victim Support uh, Facility, how that came about and what that's meant for you to be involved in the establishment of it, given that a lot of your crime reporting has been about those victims. Yeah, I'm honoured to be an ambassador for Grace's Place and, and very proud to be an ambassador, so I'll, I'll beat it strong every day of the week. Um, I guess my involvement with Grace's Place, it goes right back to the, uh, the 80s 
and the whole the, the formation of the Homicide Victim Support Group, and I won't bore you with the greater details, but it basically came together with the murder of Anita Cobby, who was the Blacktown nurse who was so brutally mm-hmm. murdered, um, and also the murder of little Ebony Simpson, a nine-year-old girl who was abducted, raped, and thrown alive into a dam down at Bargo. Now, the parents of both those, one was a child and one was a, a woman, but the parents of those those people came together and it was at that time that I think it was realised by a number of people, not me, but a number of people, that these families needed more support because no one can really understand what they're going through mm. apart from the families that go through it. You know, I've often said to journalists when I've been speaking to them, you know, we go into the homes of um, people who have lost loved ones to whether it be a car accident, a terror attack, a murder, whatever it might be, and we'll sit down with the family. And often often it's quite cathartic for the family to be able to speak to a stranger about the loved one they've lost because they're able to tell that stranger all about that person, and that's mm. that can be quite good. But I do know that we've often, and I was taught this by a Salvation Army officer who who dealt with a lot of trauma in his life, Don Woodland, and he would deal with people who'd gone through trauma and he would say to me, you cannot tell these people that you understand what they're going through because how can you understand what they're going through? The only way you'll ever understand it is if you've lost someone in a similar way. And it was such a salient point. Anyway, I've, I've, I've got sidetracked a little bit. So the Homicide Victim Support Group began with those two families and Martha Jabor, who's the chief executive of the Homicide Victim Support Group, who's just a wonderful lady with the biggest heart, She's built this into an organisation that now supports, sadly, thousands of families because if you look at the number, even if you just look at the murders um, that occur, um, you know, let's say there's an average 100 a year and this started back in the 80s, all these families are offered support by the Homicide Victim Support Group. Now, it, it, it received government funding and, and there are other groups like Enough is Enough and um, there's um, a couple of people that do... Um, I think there's another Victims of Crime Assistance League um, who all, I guess, have the same ethos, and that's to ensure that the families of of trauma, families of crime, are given the necessary support. And they need that support because, for instance, if you know you or I and you've got some understanding of the legal process, as I have, but if I didn't and I lost my son and you had to go to court and you listened to the court process of the person who mm. may have murdered my son, you're like you're in another country. It's another language. Yeah. So they need that support, um, not just from the legal perspective, but also the emotional perspective yeah. and how to handle the media. Um, that's a, that's increasingly a bigger bigger issue going forward. That you know all these families are exposed to the media, and um, I do hope that the media treat them respectfully. Um, and that's one of the things I guess the Homicide Victim Support Group has tried to tried to encourage with journalists going forward. But from the Homicide Victim Support Group, I, um, I then I've, I started up back in 2013. I was actually standing, they had a house down at um, Yarrawarra, down, uh, Garrawarra down at um, just um, down near Helensburg there, and it was a respite house. It's called Ebony House, named after Ebony Simpson, and it was for families of murder victims who have to come to the city to go to court or to attend to whatever they might have to attend to, and they could stay there. It was a, a respite house for them. And um, I was there and there was a bit of a working bee down there and I was standing next to Peter Simpson, Ebony's dad, and we were at the gate of the house and he was living in the south coast at the time and he said, you know, Simon, he said, there was a big truck convoy that came through my town the other day and everyone sort of stood up and looked because they made so much noise and 
wondered what it was all about, you know. He said, wouldn't it be great for the Homicide Victim Support Group to have something like that? And I said to him, well, Pete, I don't drive trucks, but I ride motorcycles. And as a consequence, um, I began the Ride for Justice, and that began in 2013, and we've done it every year. COVID, I think, knocked us around one year. But we've done it every year since, and basically, you know, it's it's a ride for people who believe in justice, and it's all for the Homicide Victim Support Group. And yeah. um, we raise a few dollars, not a hell of a lot of money, but we raise more. More importantly, I think we raise awareness. So mm. when we are running around, we, um, you know, people do wonder what we're doing, and we have a full police escort. And um, the New South Wales Police Force has been particularly supportive. They provide air support and ground support, and um, and that's been for me. That's been, I guess. You know, you ask why I get involved with this. I guess it's giving back to these people hmm. because we do, as journalists, ask a lot of people to surrender this, open their hearts to us and surrender their thoughts to us. And uh, I think it's the least we can do to give back a little. Um, and that's probably why I'm, I'm so heavily involved with, the, uh, with Grace's Place and the Homicide Victim Support Group. Yeah, right. Simon, for you personally... That give back obviously is is meaningful to you, which is why you do it. But your own outlet. So you've talked about motorbike riding, and I know you've authored quite a number of authored and co-authored quite a number of books. How big of a part of your management of yourself are those elements of what you do outside of your your obviously very intense role that you have with Channel Nine? Look, I think the key for me is family. It's my family. Um, I've got a lovely wife and two kids. Uh, the kids are now adults. My daughter's 31, and interestingly, she's, uh, she's one of the senior people at the police media unit these days. So right. I'm very proud of what she's achieved. She worked with me here at Channel 9 for nine years um, as, a, as a journalist, and she's now made the move over to police media, which has been terrific. And my son, who's 28, um, he, he took the technical side of life. He now does um, IT security for the Commonwealth Bank. Right. Both of them have achieved so much. But I think the key for me is I met my wife in high school. So she's been with me from day one. So you look at it, you know, when I was a copy boy listening to all those radios at at, uh, News Limited, she was what I was going home to. I was going out with her at that time. So she's been there all the way through. And so she's, what's the, I guess she's, she keeps me sane. Hmm. I think there's a there's a big chunk of everybody that has these intense roles that are both bound up with work related stressors in the in both the you know traumatic exposure, but also the work pressures of the 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 demands of emergency services work, the demands of journalism, those time constraints that you're operating under, take such a big toll on you personally, and it, it. it's so important to have that network and that backing, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I think, you know, and I spoke about this at the uh, police rescue function. Mm. I don't know if the public have a, a thorough understanding of the life of an emergency service officer, uh, what they experience. I mean, you know, as, as I said, and I've said a number of speeches, police will get up in the morning, put on their uniform and go after work. Their loved ones don't know if 100, 100% if they're going to be coming home that night mm. or if they're going to come home that night damaged because of something they've seen or been involved with. Similarly with ambulance officers, similarly with fire brigade officers. You know, I think 
it's it's a rare breed of person that can do the job of emergency services and and i i do sometimes question you know we we as a community and the media as part of that community we tend to jump on board and criticize sometimes i think a little too quickly the actions that emergency services personnel will take and those actions are taken in a split second mm. they're not they don't have the benefit of sitting back in their armchair at home analyzing the situation and saying well i probably would have done it this way no they have you know a second to react often and that can be a life or death situation doesn't and again it doesn't have to be police it can be a paramedic who's arrived at a car scene and they don't know if that car is going to explode and they're trying to pull the person out. You know, there's, there's, there's so many different variables that, you know, the community, I think, lose track of. And I think that's one thing that, you know, if you're related to a police officer or a fire brigade officer or a paramedic, you do have an understanding. But generally, I think that's, that's something that's missed yeah. in the community. Yeah, and actually the the people that I've been talking to since starting this podcast and certainly the people that are part of the Heart to Heart Walk that are all, you know, first responders that have mm-hmm. unfortunately succumbed to some level of mental health impact, um, some quite extreme. And, you know, that toll that work takes is so apparent in these people when you actually scratch the surface even on people even in people that look like they're traveling quite okay it doesn't take a lot to actually just get a glimpse into them as a person and and their their own struggles in actually managing that career it's uh and and unfortunately as we've talked about the importance of family often that can that impact is spread to the families unfortunately and that's that's one of those hidden impacts i think that people are even less aware of is how much how much families actually carry, I guess, of those emergency services workers, their oh, partners and their kids. Because, yeah. you know, those first responders take take their issues home. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it takes extraordinary family support, you know, to to remain strong uh, in the face of that. You know, it's interesting, I think, you know, and, and you touched on it, it doesn't take much for uh, their turmoil to come to the surface. You know, it's a trigger. It can be the least little trigger, but it might just be a smell. It might be a sound. It might be – it could be anything that just triggers that memory and takes them right back. It's interesting. I've, I've written a couple of books, as you've pointed out. I wrote, I wrote Stuart Diver's book, who obviously survived the Threadbay landslide mm. but lost his wife in the process and then lost his second wife to cancer. Terribly, terribly sad story. But both he and Luke Warburton, who was a senior constable sergeant at the time, dog handler who went into an MP in hospital and ended up being shot with his own weapon and almost died. Both of them saw the same psychologist. Um, I won't name him here because he might not want me to name him, but he, interestingly, Stuart told me the process that this psychologist took Stuart through, and that was, and he described it as, when we experience trauma, so that can be anybody. It doesn't have to be a first responder. It could be a bus driver. It can be me. It could be you. But when we experience trauma, it enters our brain through our eyes, right? So we witness it and we see it and we go, it's not good, whatever it is. But it's not, it's not what we would normally experience in our day-to-day life. So mm. in our day-to-day life, we are able to process things as they come into our minds through our eyes, you know, when we go shopping and we do this work or 
we catch the bus, we catch the train. It's, it's all process and it gets filed away into a neat little filing cabinet in your brain. But when something traumatic happens, the way this psychologist explained it to Stuart, and I think he still thinks it's the same way, something traumatic happens, comes into your brain, but it happens so suddenly that your brain can't process it properly mm. and it doesn't know where to put it, what filing cabinet it's got to go in, what folder it's got to be put into. And eventually it just gets rattled around the head and eventually comes back out again and that's when you see the meltdowns. Mm. That's why you see you know, post-traumatic stress disorder coming out in first responders in military. I mean, you could just go look at the um, you know, the Royal Commission into yeah. veteran suicide now, you know, the, the, the trauma that these people experience, and they they wouldn't see it as trauma at the time. Yeah. But it can come back out. And that's where, you know, how you combat that, I don't know. I wish I had yeah, the, the magic wand to say this is what we've got to do to stop people having, you know, having these issues somewhere down the track. But it's, yeah, that's – and it's a very sensible way of explaining it. It's a very basic way of explaining it, but it's, you know, it sort of hits an nail on the it's head. It's logical, yeah, that's right. So from a – from your industry's point of view, you know, you've got staff going out in, in, like you've explained in your international deployments and also just even locally in the, within, within New South Wales, you know, going out to time after time after time, you know, these serious incidents that have obviously got some sort of tragic storyline to them. How do you manage that exposure uh, as an industry, just generally speaking? I think the media industry, um, as it's evolved, has realised that um, it has to be there to offer the correct support and counselling. And we are. If we, um, you know, if I, I, I vaguely remember that when we came back from the Christchurch earthquake, we were offered services if we needed it. Um, and you can take, you know, you can take them anonymously and, and, and it doesn't sort of reflect on your employment or anything like that. And I think that's, that's a must. Um, yeah. I do think... There's not many journalists who do cover the types of things we're talking about for extended periods of time. Mm. There are quite a few, but it has a very high turnover. So we will have a lot of young journalists who will come through and they will work on, you know, what they call the chase shift, which is, you know, chasing car accidents, chasing drama, chasing trauma. But they'll only do it for a short while because over time it wears them down. Yeah. And, you know, and I think management uh, across all media realise that and um, they do offer then options for these journalists to explore other other styles of reporting. I guess I'm old school. I've been doing it for so long. If you, you know, <laughs> mate, you can't teach them. New, well, old dogs, new tricks. Um, I'm an old <laughs> dog and I don't know if I could learn a new trick. So, you know, I cope with it from my perspective, as I said, it's my family, it's my wife. Um, it's been able to go home and just put it, put it to rest, but they're never really put into rest. I mean, yeah. all those families within the Homicide Victim Support Group who I've dealt with, some of them are great friends, still right. are, and always will. I remember Harry Potter. Harry Potter, a lot of your listeners will remember Harry. He was a great crime reporter yeah. for Channel 10, went around for he many, was around many forever. years. around yeah. forever, And he, and I remember right up until he, he passed away from cancer, but he would send the families, like he might have touched a family's life in some you know, decades earlier, but on the anniversary of that person's death, that loved one's death, he would send the family a bunch of flowers or a card just to say, thinking of you. That's right. the special thing, you know, that's a special thing. Wow. Yeah. That's a, well, that's, um, 
that's a level of connection, I guess, that you almost actively avoid, or I know I certainly did in my emergency services career, was those sort of reminders of those type of things. And I, I can only imagine what that what that must be like actually revisiting those things on an annual basis, given the volume of events that you guys would be going to. But it's uh, it's certainly a, I guess it's a coping strategy and it's a very nice gesture, obviously, in the sense of things. But um, Well, it is. It, 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 it works, but it's a two-way street. It's a coping strategy for us to maintain that contact and, yeah. and be there for them if they need to speak to you. But it's also good for them. Um, yeah. And I think um, yeah, we share, we go into these people's lives and we share their trauma. So if we're sharing the trauma, we've got to deal with that trauma as well as they've got to deal with that trauma. So Simon, you're uh, you're often known in my circles as a supportive journalist, I guess, um, in in the sense that you're. I don't like I don't like to say sides, but <laughs> yeah, um, you know you've 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 certainly been that journalist that's not had alarm bells ringing next to it when your names come up, and you've certainly you know through your actions, through your uh, activities, and uh, things that you do extraneous to your role you've certainly been a standout in in the support of emergency services work and you know the people and the stories behind it obviously so on that note how do you how do i see myself yeah i was just just thinking yeah how do you see yourself in that uh uniqueness or that that basically that uniqueness of being thought of that way well, I think as I began this, I said I was either going to be a cop or a journo, and I yeah. ended up being a journo. <laughs> um, and again, I began when I spoke about Bill Jenkins and said Colbert and the amount of trust that I saw and the respect that they earned um, as journalists because of the way they behaved and the way they carried themselves when dealing with anybody. And now, it doesn't necessarily need to be a first responder or a police officer. But it's just a matter of operating ethically and and being trustworthy and not you've got to be a person of your word. You know, I mean, I think mm. any cop will tell you. You know, if in in my job, if I was to burn a confident or confidence, <laughs> see you later. Yeah, I'm gone. You know, <laughs> and I've I've got no doubt over the years, um, certain things have happened where I've been trusted with information which may not be correct, just to see if I'd hold my guts. Yeah, right. And and I did. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm proud that I've been able to do that. Now, I'm sure a lot of my colleagues would look at me and say, oh, he's pro-police or he's pro this. I'm proud of being pro-police, you know, because the cops do a bloody hard job. Um, sometimes <laughs> they don't do it correctly. Yeah. And I think we've seen evidence of that. Um, but that's just part of the course. Every, every barrel's got a couple of bad apples and God, you know, I, I, I was reporting throughout and during the you know, the Royal Commission days of yep. the police force. Um, a lot of the police officers who um, were disgraced in that, I knew. Uh, yeah, did I right. call them friends? Uh, probably not, but I certainly knew them and socialised with some of them. But it all comes down to that trust, that word trust. Um, and recently, uh, last year, I've just accepted, the, well, I accepted the position as being editor of the Australian Police Journal which the Australian Police Journal has been around for more than seven decades and it's written by police for police. And, of course, one of the questions that's often asked to me now is you're not police. I said, yeah, I'm not police, but 
uh, you know, I reckon if you cut me, I'm going to bleed blue as much as anybody else. <laughs> I was going to say you've been around enough of it to, uh, I'm sure you've picked up a few bits and pieces in your, yeah, in your 40 exactly. years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had heard that actually. I, um, yeah, I, I've known a couple of the editors over the years. And then when I heard you were doing it, I went, Hey, that's a bit different. So yeah. There you go. And, and I think that's, that's just a reflection of that trust. I think in the reciprocal to you is to be trusted to actually, you know, manage and edit that information and, and return it back to that, that audience. It's, um, you know, that's. I also think it's important that I have an understanding, you know, I, I think I understand, uh, yeah. A police, a police officer's way of thinking. Yeah, and I think um, that therein lies the key to being the editor, because you know, you, I think I know what the police want to read, and I think I know the topics that interest them and the topics that don't. Absolutely. Um, and so you know, that's and look, there's a great bunch of assistant editors who've been there for a long time and from all over the country, and they're they're extremely talented, all of them police officers, um, but um, they've, they've been a tremendous support in mm. in making certain that. You know, I, I slide into the role reasonably seamlessly and I, I think we've been able to achieve that. So it's been good. It's been very good. So, Simon, this is a hot debrief episode where I, I take an opportunity to talk to guests like yourself about your career and your life generally are more broadly in the uh, sense of a hot debrief. So I'd really like your reflections on what do you think you got right or what did you do well during your career and life more broadly? What do you think you didn't get quite so correct or what do you think you got wrong? And then what would you do differently if you had your time again? So starting with the first part of the, the hot debrief, what do you think went well for you during your career? I think I've been surrounded by some very, very good people who've taught me um, values and ethics, and that has enabled me to pursue the career, I believe, with honour. And um, I think being receiving the Queen's Honours or the, the Order of Australia um, medal, um, I guess, was evidence of that because it meant mm. that some people out there thought highly enough of me to recommend me for that. So mm. yeah, I think working with people, I've been surrounded by people who have very high ethics and, and high morals, and I think I've been able to learn a lot from those people. Mm. Yeah, I think the you know being being awarded the member of the Order of Australia is a, is is no small gesture of that recognition of how you've done your um, work over those years, including not not only just in your mainstream career, but also all of the other activities that you've done supporting people like the victims of homicide and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think that you know I was awarded it for. Um, my work as a journalist, but more importantly to me, it was also water for my work in the community. And I think, mm. um, yeah, I think that was more more significant than the journalism work. But there you go. Now, on the flip side of that, what do you think? What do you think you've got wrong, or what what hasn't gone to plan for you? I've missed too many birthdays and too many important occasions um, because, look, this job that I work in requires immediacy. Um, for instance. <laughs> Last week I missed uh, my wedding anniversary and my daughter's birthday, which happened to fall on the same day, because I was required to cover the um, arrival of the Indian Prime Minister. If I went back over the years, I've missed a lot of birthdays, which I do regret, um, especially when the kids were little. Mm. Um, but again, um, having a very supportive wife who understands what the job entails has enabled me to do that and to 
not be comfortable with it, but to live with those decisions. Mm. That's a regret, though. I, I, I have missed quite a lot from a personal perspective. Yeah, right. So if you had that time again of your young self, or if you could have a discussion with your, your young self in that room listening to those police radios all those years ago, what, what advice would you give yourself or what would you do differently if you had your time again? Would I have signed, walked into the Redfern Academy? I, I, <laughs> I was going to get to that. <laughs> I think I might have. Um, how my life would have evolved from that, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I look at some amazing police officers. Um, you know, I've had a lot to do with a um, family, Bryson Anderson. He was a detective yeah, inspector right. who I think I met on one occasion, but he died in terrible circumstances. And I've got to know. His two brothers, one's a former police officer, now a lawyer, and the other one works um, in the tyre industry. And they're just wonderful, wonderful men, and they treat me with great respect. You know, if, if I could have been a police officer that would have made such a difference as what Detective Inspector Bryson Anderson did, then I would have been pretty happy with life, I think. Mm. It's an interesting fork in the road that you encountered because there's a lot of similar decision points, I think, in police officers' lives where they've thought about probably not necessarily journalism is probably not that common, but certainly military lines or, you know, ambulance or firefighting or whatever. And, yeah, you've got to make a choice at one point in time. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on, wondering, you know, how things would have been different if I had have chose that military line or, you know, done something different in, my, uh, in, in that stage of my life. But, yeah. yeah, but I think, you know, you can't. You can't live your life thinking what if. No. You know, you, you seize the choices you make, you seize with both hands and give it the best shot you can. Mm. And I think you would have done that um, and probably most of the people listening to this, I hope, have done that. Yeah. Um, and you've certainly done that. <laughs> I've tried to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, on that note, Simon, I really appreciate your time and thank you very much for letting us into a little snapshot into the life of a journalist and what it's like from the other side of the camera. It's not something that a lot of, I know a lot of people think about it, but it's not a, it's not a, not something a lot of people know a lot about. And certainly your, the diversity of what you've been involved in, in your career is probably a little different to the, to the norm, but it's, yeah, wow. What a, what a spectrum of work you've covered over the years. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, that's been it's been interesting. Uh, I'm 63 this year, so I guess I'm starting to look at the twilight years and now I'm wondering what I'm going to do. I'll, I think I'll keep doing the APJ, the Australian Police Journal, because I love doing that. But, yeah, how long I'll stick at this game day in, day out, I don't know. We'll see. You're still a busy man. You were hard to pin down. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you're looking forward to putting your feet up. I am. Yeah. I am. All right, look, thank you very much for your time again. Good on you, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you. been listening to the heart to heart foundation podcast people on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org that's www.heart the number two heartwalk.org or just google it